Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. About six months ago, we put out an episode that was called Six Impossible Episodes, and it was six subjects that are really frequent listener requests, but for some reason or another, they could not really stand on their own as individual episodes. And people seem to enjoy that one. And since then, we've collected another heaping handful of topics that people are asking for a lot, but which we can't quite do a whole show on. So today, six more impossible episodes. Hooray! These are fun because it's, uh, you know, a little less intensive than digging super deep in like a long full-length episode. And it's like a nice little smorgasbord. Yes. Yeah, I and I, I am riding on an airplane four times in six days. So <laughs> that's why we're doing this today. Yeah. There, uh, it's going to be super fun. I love it. So first one. Anytime we say anything about Paul Revere on our Facebook posts or anywhere else on the internet, really at least one person, but far more often it is more than one, asks the same question, which is, how come nobody ever talks about Sybil Luddington? And so in case you maybe aren't from the United States, uh, on the eve of the Revolutionary War, Paul Revere was part of a now famous ride to spread the word of an impending attack. And later on in the war, Sybil Ludington also made a different but far less famous ride. So anytime we say Paul Revere, it's like a call and response. Somebody else says Sybil Ludington. <laughs> you could use that as the alternate to Marco Polo as a pool game, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so Sybil was born in Connecticut on April 5th of 1761. And when she was still a baby, her family moved to Dutchess County, New York, which lies along the New York-Connecticut border. Her father, Henry Ludington, had decades of military experience. So as war loomed between Britain and its colonies in North America... He quickly became a colonel and was put in command of a regiment that was responsible for guarding territory along the New York-Connecticut border. This is a pretty critical piece of land because it was one of the primary ways that the loyalists could reach Long Island Sound from elsewhere farther inland. That's why when Governor William Tryon and his men raided Danbury, Connecticut in 1777, a rider was sent from Danbury to the Ludington home in Dutchess County to ask Sybil's father to send help. Danbury was also strategically important, and it was home to several Continental Army storehouses that were full of food, munitions, and other supplies. So this rider that had been dispatched was too exhausted to continue by the time he got to the Ludington home. And Colonel Ludington needed to prepare for battle. So he sent his oldest child, Sybil, to muster his forces so they could go to Danbury's aid. It's not totally clear whether she volunteered for this task or whether she was sent. And at this point, Sybil had just turned 16. And her ride wound through 40 miles of mostly wooded territory at night. So... Sybil's age and the length of her ride, which was longer than Paul Revere's, are often held up as reasons why she is really more deserving of a claim than Paul Revere was. And then there's often this undertone of, well, she should have had that acclaim and she would have if she were a man. But as most of these things go, there's more to it than that. Paul Revere's ride is famous largely because of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem first published in 1861. And that is the one that starts with, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. 
It's not a very historically accurate poem, which is why a lot of people remember <laughs> wrong things about Paul Revere's ride, including that he was not the only one that was on it. Right. The poem is only about him. But this poem was written more than 80 years after the ride in question took place. And it was written after Longfellow visited the Old North Church in Boston, which is more far- more formally known as Christ Church. And the Old North Church is the one where the one-if-by-land, two-if-by-sea signal lanterns were hung. And there are several likely reasons why Paul Revere is the star of this poem and not someone else. Apart from his ride to warn of the attack, he was a prominent Boston citizen and an active participant in other parts of the Revolutionary War. For example, he made an engraving of the Boston Massacre that we talked about in our episode on that event. Paul Revere also served with Longfellow's grandfather in the service. And just to be really basic about it, I think we should add that Revere is easy to rhyme things with. It is much easier to rhyme (laughs) things with than Lettington. So when Longfellow was writing his poem about someone he had a family connection to, whose ride connected to a place he had just visited, Lettington's story hadn't even been written down yet. It survived as family lore for roughly 100 years before it was actually published anywhere. And Sybil's great-nephew, historian Lewis S. Patrick, wrote about it in 1907. At which point, schoolchildren were already memorizing the Longfellow poem. So you could totally make the argument that Sybil Luddington's gender meant she could not make a name for herself the way Paul Revere did and later become famous thanks to a historically inaccurate poem. We just don't really know anything about her beyond the fact that when the war was over, she got married to a Revolutionary War veteran named Edward Ogden. They had a son, and they later opened a tavern, and she died on February 26, 1839. She just was not the sort of prominent, publicly-facing citizen that Paul Revere had been. And we don't have any primary source documentation about her ride at all. And even tiny details like how she spelled her name are different based on the things like her tombstone, her signature, and census records. It's literally spelled differently in all of those places. So in terms of no one talking about her, there are many, many children's books about Sybil Luddington. And she was commemorated on a bicentennial postage stamp in 1975 Even when she lived, George Washington himself came to her home to thank her personally for having ridden to muster all the men after the Battle of Danbury. There is a particularly fierce-looking statue of her in Carmel, New York, along with a number of historical markers along her ride route. So her story just was not well-known at all outside of her family and maybe local neighbors from the area Uh, when the poem that made Paul Revere famous was written. Like, that poem was solidly in the collective memory of America before Sybil Luddington's story was even written down at all. Yeah, that poem has great scansion and cadence, (laughs) so it's really easy to remember and it's really kind of engaging, but... Uh, as the sort of sad coda as well, Colonel Luddington's efforts were also too late to save Danbury. The British burned thousands of barrels of food along with tents, shoes, and other supplies before Luddington and other reinforcements were able to arrive. Yeah. So that is the story of Sybil Luddington and also why people talk about Paul Revere more. Uh, next up, we have one that was requested first by Diane. 
long enough ago that it is number 56 on our listener submitted ideas list, which is now hundreds and hundreds of ideas long. It is the Capuchin Catacombs in Palermo, Sicily, which are home to about 8,000 mummies. The Capuchin community in Palermo was established in 1534 at the Church of Santa Maria della Pacha. At first, the friars who lived there were buried in what was essentially a mass grave. But about 60 years later, the monastery outgrew that, that mass burial site. So the friars decided to dig a larger set of catacombs using natural caves that already existed in the area. Doing this required them to exhume the bodies that had already been buried. And when they did, they found that 45 of them had been naturally preserved and were just in a really pristine condition. Their bodies had dehydrated rather than rotting. They interpreted this as a sign from God. And then rather than proceeding with what had uh, essentially been planned as a bigger mass grave, they decided instead to keep the exhumed bodies intact and displayed them as religious relics. And the new burial site that they created was built with that end goal in mind. They also gradually refined the cave's natural preservation process into an intentional mummification, which included removing the organs and stuffing the cavity of the bodies with straw and placing the bodies on terracotta tubes to help them dry faster. The friars used a number of other preservation methods as well. Silvestro of Gubbio was a 16th century Capuchin monk, and he was the first to be buried in these new catacombs. Originally, the only bodies that were placed in the catacombs were those of friars who were part of the order after they died. But eventually, as word spread about the catacombs, being mummified and placed there after death became a mark of high status. So the bodies of nobility and famous local citizens joined the uh, those of the friars. And eventually, the order began allowing the burial of anyone who requested it in 1783. One of the things that makes this place so compelling is that the bodies, which are very well preserved, are out in view. They're dressed. Family members would even come to change the body's clothes. And some are on shelves, some hang from hooks, and some are in open, coffin-like containers. Some are posed almost as though they're taxidermy displays. And there's one hall that's entirely the bodies of infants, some of them in cradles. And although they're arranged into approximate categories like professionals, priests, monks, virgins, relatively few of these bodies are actually identified. The friars stopped burying new bodies there in 1880, and they made only two exceptions afterward. One was Giovanni Paterniti, who was buried in 1911, and the other was Rosalia Lombardo, who was two years old and placed there in 1920. The monks teamed up with the European Union to start a conservation project on the site in 2008, because it has become a major tourist destination, but very little had been done up to that point in the centuries since it was first built to preserve it. We are going to put an image gallery of some pictures of this place on our website because it is incredible to look at. Uh, but most of the information that's available about it in English as of right now is sort of like travel guide type of stuff. It's it's a tourist attraction at this point, and most of the things that are written about it are written in that Vein. So I could not find enough richer information to make a whole episode out of it. But so many people have asked. We wanted to spend a little time today. Cool. So before we go to our next impossible episode, do you want to pause from a brief word from a sponsor? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Our most recent requests for our next subject, who is Jeanne de Clisson, came from Laramie and Mary in two different emails very recently. 
And she, unfortunately, is yet another person who falls into the not enough reliable information available in English category. We've had some folks write in to tell us that we just need to hire some people who speak other languages. Y'all, it's just the two of us and Noel. Like, <laughs> we don't have like a staff budget. <laughs> no, we, we, we don't have a translation staff. We literally look so many things up and we still get them wrong because we are not fluent speakers of every language. Yes. Because it is just the two of us and Noel. Yeah, and we do try to outsource when we can, but sometimes it's just not feasible. Right. When you're working. Uh, so Jeanne de Clisson was a noblewoman and a pirate. In 1343, her second husband, Olivier III, Lord of Clisson, was executed for treason upon the orders of King Philip VI of France. So Jeanne pulled her money. She bought a fleet of ships. She rallied the support of other discontented nobles who were unhappy with Philip VI for some reason. And then she went on a rampage of terror and piracy. She purportedly painted her ships black and dyed their sails red to make her fleet extremely impressive. And she was nicknamed the Lioness of Brittany. I can see why lots of people want to hear about her. She's fabulous. Right. Though a little cutthroat and bloodthirsty. Murderous rage kind of situation. <laughs> uh, she was so successful in her revenge campaign that she won the support of King Edward III of England, who loaned her more ships and weapons so she could more effectively fight against France. When she was done with seeking revenge, she sought and gained sanctuary in the English court. And people like to send us Wikipedia articles as starting points, which thank you, but we actually do not use Wikipedia for our research. And we're going to talk about our research a little bit more later. Uh, and the Wikipedia entry for uh, Jeanne de Clisson does have more details about her life, but they are basically sort of scattered sentences and it's not really documented in terms of sourcing. Yeah. Uh, so that's not really a valid source for us. No. And it's it's not even the thing, the thing that you can do where you can see what the sources were and start from there because it doesn't say where these random sentences of facts came from. Who knows? So moving on. Uh, that I think is the briefest of our six impossible episodes today. Uh, moving on. So we're not sure when the first request came in to talk about the Kentucky meat shower. But there were a whole lot that came in after XKCD put out comic number 1501, which is called Mysteries. And that charts a bunch of historical mysteries based on how weird they are and whether they can be explained or not. So the Kentucky meat shower is in the quadrant for stuff that's both really weird and also explained. And we have episodes about several of the other mysteries that are uh, in that comic, including the Mary Celeste, D.B. Cooper, the Oak Island Money Pit. I think the Dietlov Pass incident is oh, yeah, on there. A bunch of them. A lot of them, really. So, yeah, I thought about doing a whole episode that was just on the mysteries from the comic that we haven't covered. And I think some people actually did ask for that specifically. But some of them are extremely recent and others are basically summarized in a sentence. <laughs> so... On March 3rd of 1876, the Crouches, who lived in Bath County, Kentucky, witnessed what appeared to be meat falling from a clear sky. And these pieces of meat were in various shapes and sizes, some of them just little meaty wisps and some chunks as big as a person's hand. The New York Times later wrote about this event under the headline, Flesh Descending in a Shower. In all capital letters. <laughs> so... It also sounds like a weird, um, like the kind of play that you would see in an experimental college theater. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so afterward, Alan Crouch and his wife found that a strip of their land, about 100 yards long and 50 yards wide, was just covered in chunks of this meaty substance. 
neighbors came by to look at it. Their cat ate some of it. Ah! Yeah. Some people tasted it also. Uh, they came up with various theories for what they thought it tasted and smelled like, including mutton, venison, and bear. And eventually, people gathered up pieces of it and sent it to various labs for testing. And the various labs came back with various results, including that it was dried frog spawn, that it was Nostoc, which is a cyanobacteria that forms this gelatinous protective coating, uh, or that it was some actual type of animal flesh. Eventually, the prevailing theory became that it was actually brace vomit. My least favorite thing in the world. Vulture vomit, which would explain why the cat was so drawn to it, uh, from from vultures that had overindulged on something they had scavenged. It makes it super gross, as we said, that the cat and a number of people ate some of it. So there are not really a ton of books or historical papers or peer-reviewed whatever on this event. It's the sort of thing that would be really fun to research by going through old newspaper archives to figure out exactly what people were saying about it at the time. And the thing is, a writer named Matt Soniak has already done that in the pages of Mental Floss. So trying to get a whole article together based on that exact same process would just feel a little bit too much like we were cribbing off of his work. There is a preserved piece of this meat at the Monroe Boosnick Medical and Science Museum at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, if you are yearning to see what the vomity meat looks like. I'm not. <laughs> The look on your face pretty much says it all, so I won't say the V word anymore. <laughs> uh, and and we have two more impossible episodes, one of which makes us really sad that, that it's impossible. And we're going to talk about them after another brief word from a sponsor. Uh, that particular sponsor at this moment is Squarespace, the best way to create a beautiful website or online store for you and your ideas. Uh, I have been working on mine for my selling blog. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit of a foot dragger, but it's coming along and soon we'll actually officially launch. I'm pretty excited because while I had some trouble starting out all on my end going, what the heck do I do next? They totally walked me through it and I love the process now and I feel like I have a really good understanding of the product. So they basically are going to give you the opportunity through a really simple interface to build a powerful and beautiful website. It's a robust and reliable platform. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site. It's going to be the maximum security and stability you could ask for. And what I really like is that your website will scale to any device. So people that are looking on mobile devices get the same great experience as people that are looking on a laptop or a desktop. It's fabulous. And if you want to monetize your website, there's a commerce option. Every website comes with powerful e-commerce capabilities. So start your trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Uh, make sure when you go and start your new trial that you enter the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your Squarespace account and show your support for the show. So go build your free trial, and then if you decide you want to hang on to it, then you can pay for it and keep going forever with all that stability there at your fingertips. Just go to squarespace.com, enter your offer code HISTORY. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Okay, as we said before the break, our penultimate impossible episode makes us so sad that it's impossible. One of our most frequently requested episodes, at least after we did one on the Night Witches, so people stopped requesting that one, is infamous serial killer Elizabeth, or more accurately, Elizabeth Bathory. And... Elizabeth Bathory was actually the second subject ever covered on our show. So when people ask for an episode on her, we point them back to that one, which being the second episode ever on our show, it is only three minutes long. 
And we don't normally put out do-overs of previous hosts' episodes. History is basically infinite, and even if we would have approached a subject in a different way from a previous host's take on it, there's just so much to cover that we haven't already done. Uh, there is an exception. I did a, a redo of um, um, one of them. Uh, Zenobia of Palmyra. Yeah, Zenobia. Just because that was like a personal zone of super interest for me. But normally we don't usually backtrack on those. Um, but when it comes to Elizabeth Bathory, we get so many requests and so many disappointed follow-ups when people realize that the old episode is quite brief, that it made sense to at least talk about it. So Elizabeth Bathory was born in 1560 into Transylvania's ruling family. She was very wealthy, very beautiful, and very well-educated. And when she was 11 or 12, she was betrothed to a member of another prominent family. But a couple of years later, she actually had a child by a different man, who her fiancé purportedly killed by having him castrated and then ravaged by dogs. Bathory's illegitimate child was kept secret from the rest of the world, and her marriage went ahead as planned when she was 14. Her husband died when she was 43, and between their marriage and his death, she had four children. By the time of her husband's death in 1604, there were rumors spreading that she was sadistic and cruel, and these rumors really escalated after his passing. There were stories that she tortured her servants and the daughters of peasants who were living in the area, she was rumored to drink their blood and bathe in it in order to preserve her beauty and her youth. Authorities actually investigated her in 1610. Count Georgie Thurzo, who was Bathory's cousin, was sent by King Matthias to find out what was going on. And he reportedly walked in on Bathory conducting a torture session. He took depositions from people both within and outside of the estate, and he concluded that Elizabeth had killed 600 girls with the help of her servants. She was placed under arrest that December. Four people who were reported to be her accomplices were tried, and three of them were executed. One was sentenced to life in prison. She herself was never tried, but she was confined to a windowless room in the castle for the rest of her life, which ended in 1614. She was found dead on August 21st of that year. There's some evidence to suggest that the claims against Bathory were deeply embellished or were, in fact, slander. King Matthias owed Bathory a great deal of money, and her family apparently waived that debt in exchange for getting control of her captivity. Those same family members also got control over all of her land. So, unfortunately, it became clear almost immediately when trying to research a full-length episode on Elizabeth Bathory that it just was not going to happen. There are several brief articles about her from reputable sources, but the couple of books that have been written about her in English were both self-published. Now, we're not knocking the idea of publishing your own work or of reading self-published work. Of course, you may do what you want, but since we are not experts in a lot of the things we talk about, we take a number of steps to try to ensure that the work we do use has been approached with a high degree of academic rigor. We did actually, very late in the game, find out about one non-self-published book in English. But then uh, neither of us is really comfortable sourcing an entire podcast from one book whose facts we can't verify through other independent sources. So that's that. Uh, and that brings us to Impossible Episode 6. Yeah, a lot of people ask us to do an episode that's about research tips or uh, ideas on where they can find information on particular subjects. And we talked about this a little bit in our listener mail FAQ episode a couple of years ago, but that one was more devoted 
to our process of making podcasts and having a whole episode on research tips seemed like a stretch. But since we're having to round out our sixth and to tie on to the one we just talked about, uh, some tips for research. So when it comes to, to, to books for me, the books that I read for episodes are usually person's memoirs that they wrote themselves yep. about their own lives. Uh, and often if there is some contention about whether the person's memoirs are embellished, we will say that. Yes. Um, and otherwise, most of the books, there are some exceptions, but most of the books that I use for the podcast have been published by academic presses. And so you ha- have some confidence that there has been like an editor involved in fact checking and helping to make sure that the whole thing is is as accurate and uh, correct as possible. That's like one of the steps <laughs> of making sure that the information that we're getting is right, which is why for our podcast specifically, I wouldn't normally use a self a self published book unless it was somebody's own self published memoir. Yeah, and one of the things that I do usually, it's unusual that uh, I think either of us would just use one book for an episode. Correct. Uh, so one of the things that I do, even when they are meeting all of the criteria Tracy just talked about is I kind of do a little pattern recognition. Like where are there some things that come up slightly different? Because I try to trace those back to the root and find out what is consistent across all of them and where they may have diverged and what may have caused that. Um, Because there are cases where things get a little wiggly Mm -hmm. uh, in part, just in the writing process as, as one person tries to tell the story of someone and another person does it, they may use language that kind of maybe not always even on purpose conveys a different meaning in the historical record. Right. So we try to really root those out across multiple sources. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to advocate for your local library, (laughs) Um, which may sound ridiculous. A, A lot of people think about going to the library and checking out books but most public public library systems at this point have databases that anyone with a library card can access where you can get a lot more uh, academic information on subjects, things that have been through peer review, things that have been through some kind of like more stringent editorial process to make sure that what is on the page is as accurate as it can be. So usually my uh, my research process involves books when they are available and then from databases any number of uh like academic papers on stuff and then um when there are not those sorts of things available things that are from people who in one way or another are the experts in that particular field yeah right so local library that's my big research tip anytime anybody emails us and says can you give me research tips Local library. It's going to help you out a lot. There's usually a reference librarian who can help you with lots of tips about like what your specific library system offers. Um, being now in a totally different public library system than I was when I was actually living here locally to our office where I'm recording this episode from today, actually. Uh, different libraries can have vastly different offerings in terms of exactly which databases they offer and what other services they have. So each library system's uh, reference librarian will help you out. And I will say this, having um, worked in a library for more than a decade and having still a lot of friends who are librarians and specifically reference librarians, they often love it if you go to them with a juicy research topic. They get so excited because a lot of times it's just people wanting to like put together something simple for like 
I have to do a research paper. Or I have a reference librarian friend who finally had to put the kibosh on the person who kept coming in to do her son's homework. But yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but she gets really excited when someone comes to her with a really interesting research topic. And I think a lot of times if you develop a relationship with your local research librarian, don't drive them crazy, but certainly those are people you want to uh, make friends with because they can help you find stuff you never would have even known existed. Yes. Yes. My fiance is a librarian and most of his library work uh, involves more the curation of data than book stuff at mm-hmm. this point. So whenever we are talking about uh, podcast things and I bring up some weird subject, he gets super excited and it's like, I'm going to go into the stacks and see if I have anything on that. I'm like, <laughs> I didn't ask you to do that. Just remember. That's the person <laughs> that is drawn to the library sciences. Uh-huh. My other big one is I love to find, if in all possible, uh, contemporary newspapers. Oh, yes. Yeah. That, that. And there are a number of services that will help you with those, like subscription services. Mm-hmm. I don't want to name them by name just because I don't endorse any particular one. They Different ones offer different um, benefits. Right. So, but if you find one you like, like, that's a gold mine. Yeah. And a lot of times your local library will have an archive of the, the newspaper, like your local newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then often some other big name ones, like the New York Times and the Boston Globe, uh, some of like the, the biggest, most long, long-standing newspapers uh, for U.S. people. So those are some research tips. I hope they are helpful. Yeah. I think the other thing to always be careful about is not looking for research that backs up what you already think, but actually <laughs> reading the research. It's easy to do. So easy to do. But yeah, you have to kind of keep your mind as objective as possible. That's how we keep winding up with episodes that we thought were going to be a rollicky good time, and they were not. <laughs> and turned dark and stormy. Yes. So uh, I have a couple of emails that are actually kind of related to this last piece of Impossible episode, and they are both pretty short, so I'm just going to read them both. Uh, the first one is from Catherine, and Catherine says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. A comment that Holly made on your recent USS Cyclops episode about a book she had consulted for source material reminded me of a question I've been wanting to ask you all for a while. In looking through the blog entries and sources for program content, as an aside, coming from a research profession, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that you publicly document all of your source material on the blog. I noticed that in your research, you often make an effort to read and cite at least one book on the subject in question. Given all the books you've consulted during your time uh, working on the podcast, I was wondering if you had any favorites that you could suggest to some of your bibliophile listeners, such as myself. Thanks again for all you do to make the podcast a delight. Sincerely, Catherine. Um, And she mentions having read one of the books that we read for one of the episodes, which was pretty cool. And then the other one is from Monica. And Monica says, hello, ladies. I recently discovered your podcast about two weeks ago, and I am obsessed. I am probably about halfway through the archived episodes, and I am already dreading the day when I can no longer binge listen to new episodes. I was a classic studies minor in college, but have a great passion for history, especially European. I am also absolutely obsessed with British history. I was curious to know if anyone in your office has a book recommendation or authors that refer to the Dark Ages in Europe, anywhere in Europe, maybe Holy Roman Empire, or perhaps a book of maps that shows Europe from 11th uh, century to 21st century. I'm always losing myself in the geography of the time. So to Monica, I'm opening that question up to listeners. If listeners have recommendation for this book, I, nothing immediately came to my mind. Um, so if you have book suggestions for Monica, send us a note at com, 
And for uh, Catherine's note, we did write Catherine back with some things that immediately came to mind. But I wanted to read her note for two reasons. One, thank you, Catherine. Uh, and two, um, a lot of folks don't realize that we have show notes for every episode that we do in our blog. And the show notes list out all of the sources. And the sources include basically everything that we read. So going uh, all the way back through the Tracy and Holly era, uh, if there are episodes of the podcast that you listen to and are interested in and you want to know more, you can find out where you can read more by looking in all of those uh, in the show notes post for that particular episode. Um, the the thing that gets tricky is at this point, you and I have each researched an episode every week for many months. <laughs> And so it takes, like, I am sure that I forgot many, many great, great books when I emailed Catherine back. I just, like, the two that sparked into my brain immediately were the ones that I said. But Me too. Yeah, my brain, just at this point, when we get to the end of recording, sometimes I have forgotten literally the subject that we talk about by the time we are in uh, the studio next. Well, and I think, too, um, part of it for me is, like, um, very topic specific. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can tell you what some of my favorite Disney history books are or my favorite Queen Victoria history books are. Right. But those might not be the kind of history books that you want to read. Yeah. So if we just pick a few off the top of our heads, like I would probably never pick one that's just a vast general history book, which isn't to say that those aren't great, but those right. wouldn't probably be the ones that nestle in my heart as favorites. Yeah. And the the books that I recommended uh, to Catherine were both ones where they were memoirs, where the person speaking had such a lovely candor. Yeah. <laughs> that it sounded like I was like sitting down with that person and, and hearing him tell me a story. Mm-hmm. They were Frankie Manning and... uh uh, Luis Alvarez. It was those two memoirs that I recommended just because those both had just a casual, lovely conversational tone. Yeah. Which may float your boat and may not. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That's, that's one of those ones that's a little bit tricky, I know, for me because everybody's taste is different, particularly on the, um, when you're reading on the mm-hmm. written page, the things that resonate with one person are not going to be the same things that resonate with someone else. So. Yes. So if you know of great, awesome resources for the things that Monica asked about regarding the Dark Ages in Europe, please write to us. Or if you want to recommend other books, please write to us. If you uh, have awesome questions that you want to ask, you can please write to us. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. You might be tired of me saying History, but I'm going to say it one more time, which is that our new Instagram is at History. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, just a tiny bit more, you can come to our website and put the words Elizabeth Bathory in the uh, the search bar. And you will find the article that actually sparked the original very short three-minute Elizabeth Bathory episode. You can also come to MissedInHistory.com and you will find show notes that list all of our sources, including lots and lots and lots of books that you might love, uh, an archive of every single episode, lots of other cool stuff. You can do all that and a whole lot more. HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.